Hello and welcome back to everyone. Here we are at episode 11. Father, can you believe it? I can't, Christine. We are racing through yes. while speeding through these audiences. Yeah, we are. Uh, so before we start today, would you like to lead us in prayer, Father? Yes. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we bless you. We thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, opportunity, this wonderful gift to dive deeply into this beautiful teaching of St. John Paul the Great. We ask you to continue to enlighten our hearts and minds, to set them ablaze with a deeper love of you, a deeper understanding of the mystery of the human person the mystery of our bodies and our sexuality, uh, the gift of being masculine and feminine. We ask you uh, for a greater receptivity uh, to receive this beautiful teaching into our lives. We ask, as always, uh, for the powerful intercession of Mary, our Blessed Mother, Saint Joseph, our beloved patron, and of Saint John Paul the Great himself. We make these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. So last time we were slightly challenged by um, glitches in the computers going blank, and then in too bright sunshine coming through. Not that we should complain about that. Um, so we hope there's no more interruptions in this episode. Um, so we're now at general audience 17, and this was um, uh, discussed by uh, Pope John Paul II on February the 6th, 1980. And he says at the start of this audience, he says, we are continuing our analysis of the beginning to which Jesus directed the Pharisees. And this means going beyond the threshold of man's history to reach the state of original innocence. So we're continuing this journey into this experience of original innocence. So the text that John Paul II is still continuing to mine is Genesis 2, 23 to 25. And just to remind people of what that text is, it's the one where it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So John Paul II says at the beginning of this audience that his aim is to reconstruct the distinctive character of the original innocence contained in the reciprocal experience of the body and of its spousal meaning as Genesis 2, 23 to 25 attests. He goes on to say that at the root of this reciprocal experience of the body must be the interior freedom of the gift, united above all to innocence. So John Paul II then proceeds to probe this notion of innocence more deeply, which is what we said at the beginning, that John Paul II circles round on a very regular basis. So you think you've covered something, and then in the next catechesis, he takes you deeper 
and deeper. And that's what we're doing now is going deeper and deeper into this notion of innocence. So he says, inner innocence, uh, and then in brackets, rightness of intention consists in a reciprocal acceptance of the other in such a way that it corresponds to the very essence of the gift. In this way, the mutual gift creates the communion of persons. Um, now, this is an exceptionally important um, paragraph from John Paul II, and that's what we're going to be unpacking a little bit now. So what's going on? So what he's saying is original man and original woman accepted and welcomed one another, fully acknowledging and understanding that each had been willed by God for their own sake. So they recognized the full dignity of the other who was made in the image and likeness of God. And as we said previously, each understood the capacity of their body and the power of their bodies to express love and to therefore make a total gift of self. They understood then the spousal nature of their being to give, to receive, and to accept. And this again brings us back to Gaudium et Spes 24. So if I read that section in total from Gaudium et Spes, it says, indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father, that all may be one as we are one, and that is from John 17, 21, opened up vistas closed to human reason. For he implied a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the unity of God's sons in truth and charity. This likeness reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. So this quote from Gaudium at Spes 24 is stating that when Jesus prays that all may be one as we are one, Jesus is revealing something to us that we wouldn't otherwise know. He's indicating this likeness between the Trinity and the union of man in truth and charity. So he's saying this likeness is founded in the Trinity, a union of the divine persons and an eternal relationship of self-giving. And so man, therefore, cannot fully find himself except in a sincere gift of himself, modelling, if you like, the Trinity. So with original man and original woman, she is given to man by God. He welcomes her and accepts her and she gives herself to him and welcomes him. Each is seeing the other as a creature willed by God for their own sake and someone of supreme dignity and supreme value. And then John Paul II says the opposite to this would be to treat someone as an object of use, to treat someone as a something, something to be used. And we see that, don't we, in things like lust, in porn, sex outside marriage, um, in adultery, in homosexual acts, in contraceptive acts. We see, to varying degrees, a failure to make this total gift of self and an inclination to use the other as an object of pleasure. But there is more to this notion of self-gift than we've said so far, and this is when we begin this circling round again. So John Paul II then goes on to explore the exchange of the gift, and he calls it interpenetration. So he says, the fact that they did not feel shame tells us that, and I quote, 
The exchange of the gift in which their whole humanity, soul and body, femininity and masculinity participates is realized by preserving the inner characteristics, that is precisely innocence, of self-donation and of acceptance of the other as gift. He says the two functions of mutual exchange are deeply connected in the whole process of the gift of self. Giving and accepting the gift interpenetrate in such a way that the very act of giving becomes acceptance and acceptance transforms itself into giving. And so I think in reading a passage like that, it's quite easy to get tangled in knots. And so I want to try and break that down step by step. So step one is the woman is given by God to the man. Step two, the man receives her. Step three, he welcomes and accepts her as a fellow person. We saw that in original unity. He instantly recognized her as a human person. But importantly, and this is step four, John Paul II says it's not just that he accepts her and welcomes her. It's the way he accepts her. Um, And so the question then in step five is, well, what is this way? How is it that he accepts woman? And he welcomes and accepts her as a person, not as a someone to be used, not someone for an instrumental purpose or for a transactional purpose, but he welcomes her as a dignified being of inestimable value. In other words, and this is the key, he accepts her as the creator intended her to be accepted. That's the way that man accepts woman. And so step six, in accepting her like this, as God intended her to be accepted, she then finds herself, her identity as gift. And then step seven, he says, she comes to the innermost depth of the person and possession of herself. And this, of course, is a reciprocal relationship for man and for woman. So whilst she is given by God to man, man enriches her by affirming her as a gift in the full truth of her personhood, her femininity. But at the same time, John Paul II says, man too is enriched. He is enriched not just through receiving her as a gift, but also in coming to understand himself as a gift to someone else. And it's this reciprocal relationship of giftedness, of accepting and receiving, accepting and receiving, that each one of them is enriched in this situation. And that this becomes a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship as they more and more deeply understand this notion of giftedness. And it's this vocation to reciprocal giftedness that then forms this communion of persons, this communio personarum of which John Paul II speaks. So the communion of persons is not just founded upon a bodily structure, male and female, and the capacity unite, but it's interiorly as well as exteriorly. It's in our intention, in our, if we can recover this original innocence, to will the good of the other, um, to not see the other as an object of use, but to see the other as a gift. That is where this communion of persons lies. And we might say, well, why does all of this matter? This is all quite technical and complicated. Why does it matter? Well, if we look at our fallen state, as we are living now in this state of historical man, post-original sin, 
If we're all honest with ourselves, we know that our passions are out of order on a regular basis, that we don't always will the good of the other as we should, that we put our desires, our interests and what we want first, that we don't always see the other as a creature willed by God for his or her own sake in how we treat other people. So this is why what John Paul II is saying is of such value. If we can, in our imaginations and thereby eventually in our actions, recapture some of this notion of original innocence, then we can start to focus on how we can reorder our passions and put our will in line with the divine will. So in the state of original innocence, there was no struggle, there was no disorder of the will. Original man and original woman were fully capacitated to make this total and disinterested gift of self. And so that's where I'm going to, to leave it there on that catechesis for now, Father. Do you want to add anything in? No, Christine, uh, that was that was beautiful, you know, um, really a beautiful summary. And as we keep saying, you know, on this um this podcast, so much of this text I think really can lead us towards contemplation. You know, I think it's so profound, uh, so rich, so deep that it does bring us to prayer to reflect on um, the beauty of ourselves uh, created by God. And I think what you've said, Christine, really sets up um, beautifully uh, audience 18 um, because he continues... Um, really along the same line and i think we have this uh this beautiful um if i'm not mistaken the, the first time we see this ethos of the human body that he's talking about in the um the sort of second section of audience 18 the root of the ethos of the human body and really you expressed it very well as we've seen continuously, you know, we're, we're shifting from the original vision to our own fallen state. And so um, John Paul II is really re redirecting ourselves, if you like, in our present fallen condition back to the original beauty of God's intended creation. And so, as he says in um, Audience 18, paragraph four, the root of the ethos of the human body, this is very important, he says, for the theology of the body. It is the reason why we must build this theology from the beginning, carefully following the indication of Christ's words. So I think into our culture, where so many people struggle with their identity, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Uh, what do these feelings and these um, drives, uh, these passions, what do they mean in my life? Perhaps why do they uh, lead me to, to such a destructive or um, even a repetitive type of behavior or compulsion? And these very profound questions I think are answered in this catechesis and so it's it's hard for us 
as we say, to reconstruct uh, original innocence in that uh, blessed state. But it's um, what John Paul II is trying to do and to say, as you explain, Christine, that um, Adam and Eve didn't desire even to use the other, to appropriate the other. There wasn't lust or the desire to dominate, uh, you know, to take over. They just didn't have that. They were naked without shame. There was this beautiful uh, freedom, this innocence. And so this, um, I guess, discourse on the ethos of the human body is looking at ethics. And what John Paul II is saying is that um, the ethical system that Adam and Eve lived under really just emerged spontaneously from the realization that each were a gift uh, to the other from God. And so they didn't struggle, if you like, with the moral life as we do. Um, it was just something that emerged from within, you know. Um, and so there was a naturalness. Uh, there was that freedom. They never had to really choose in that sense. And so if we fast forward to our present condition, we recognize a deeply divided heart. And um, we have to really struggle. That is why I think um, so many people think uh, that the Catholic Church, for example, imposes all these rules and regulations from outside. And they see this as a burden. They see this as impossible. I can't possibly live like that. That is the tragic consequence of original sin. And so the ethos that we have is tainted um, with this struggle. You know, it's an effort now to tell the truth. It's an effort, you know, to practice uh, moderation in food or alcohol, you know. Uh, it's an effort to live a chaste life, not to appropriate the other, as you say. And this is because of our fallen human condition. And so what John Paul II is doing, I think, so beautifully is, as Christ did, showing us the way out of that uh, enslavement that we're in. Um, and in doing that, he's showing us uh, going back to the beginning as Christ did, this is how we were supposed to live. And so if we don't understand how we were supposed to live, we have no real blueprint of how to flourish in this present condition. And so what Christ did through his passion, death and resurrection on the cross really shows us the way out of this uh in some sense, torment of our present condition, which is really tragic. So many addictive um, traits that we have, you know, so many temptations in our present culture, like, wow. 
And so I think as we move on through the catechesis, and as we've seen already, I think we touched on it last time, two key um, dimensions, two key virtues, if you like, and I think they are self-control and purity of heart. And so in focusing on these two um, dimensions and these come up in, in these audiences that we've been looking at 15 16, 17, and 18, the um, the control of self, as you explained, I think, beautifully, Christine, last time, is we need to have some sense of self if we are to make a gift. And so if we can't control our impulses or our desires, there isn't, in a sense, a cohesive enough self in order to make a gift to the other through you know marriage or through celibacy and so that is a key virtue if you like to really focus on that um self-control so that we can gain a possession of a self and then the other of course is purity of heart you know jesus says beautifully in the sermon on the mount blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god and so we begin to see how Jesus is showing us the way back to the Father, the way back to a glimpse of that original pristine beauty. And so through the gift of the sacrament of reconciliation, the soul is returned to that pristine innocence, uh, that state of original grace through what Christ did. And so for those few moments, you know, we can see if you like, um, you know, uh, our female friends, you know, in that purity of that vision, how God intended us to see that spousal mystery. It's a little taste, you know, before then we we fall into concupiscence uh, once more. And so we begin to understand why Christ came uh, to draw us out of our fallen condition back to uh, the beauty and the flourishing that God intended for us that we lost through original sin, but Christ came to restore. Um, so it really is, this is really good news, you know, to our um, culture. So, you know, to our listeners or our hearers who are maybe struggling with some kind of addictive um, uh, patterns of behavior to really as I say, focus on those two um, important components of that restoration project that I think can be achieved through the grace of God and through the study of this immense gift uh, that, that John Paul II gives us in his catechesis. Yeah, and I think also, Father, what you said there about um, the church teaching is so often perceived as being this imposition, this external bunch of rules that we're all supposed to obey and that the rules have originated in the Vatican yes. by celibate men in a patriarchal institution that doesn't understand anything. Yes. Um, instead of the fact, uh, and this is what we're coming to in the ethos of the body and that's what we're doing in building up this Christian anthropology, this adequate anthropology is that all the teachings of the church relating, particularly in this area that we're talking about, sexual ethics, derive from the truth of the human person made in the image and likeness of God, and that it is not 
anything about rules and regulations and legalism. It's about truth, beauty and goodness. And what does it mean to be a human person made in the image and likeness of God with a vocation to gift? So actually, if people understood the origin of what the church teaches, they would understand its beauty and its goodness rather than see it as this imposition from outside, this extraneous imposition on the human person. They would appreciate it as something that comes from within the human person made in the image and likeness of God. But I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, So perhaps we'll leave it there for today, Father, unless you want to add anything else. No, that's it, Christine. Yeah, I mean, there's a beautiful, um, I just noted in Audience 18, there's a a lovely couple of quotes uh, from the Council of Trent that I think are worth mentioning in the footnotes. Um, Just to say, you know, I guess, not that we need to know that, you know, John Paul II's theology of the body is deeply connected and embedded in the tradition of the Catholic Church and its uh, deposit of faith, you know. So I just thought I'd just throw that in uh, just as a a sort of a, a reference for our readers who want to dive in even more deeply into this text. But yeah, that's a lot there. Yeah, it is key, actually. The footnotes are so important in understanding the context of what's being discussed um, and, and really important in all academic work and in particular. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It shows the continuity of the teaching as well, doesn't it, Father? That's it. That's it. Okay, so thank you, everyone. Thank you, Father, for all your insights. And we'll see you next time. God bless, Christine. Thank you. And thanks, everybody. Thank you.